following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? since the seven were married to her. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. John Lennon first sang those words in 1971, and they continue to reverberate and ring out in Western culture today. The famous song proceeds to imagine a world not only with no afterlife, but also with no religion to divide or national borders to defend. The assumption, of course, is that if we could just get rid of these archaic distractions, heaven, hell, religion, borders, then we'd be freed, finally freed, to experience unity and peace. If Amazing Grace is American society's Christian anthem, Imagine is surely our secular anthem. But despite this popular vision of of a supposed utopia, eight out of ten Americans believe in an afterlife. Six out of ten believe in a heaven and a hell. But don't be too quick to be encouraged. Uh, Stats like this can be misleading because what people actually envision when they think about such a place, an afterlife, when they describe a heaven or a hell, is often not so biblical, not so encouraging. Modern secular people like John Lennon are not the first in human history to imagine this, to imagine that the world would just simply be a better place if we could stop believing in fairy tales, things like an afterlife. In fact, in our passage this morning, we encounter this very perspective among some elite religious leaders 2,000 years ago. If you have a copy of God's Word, uh, please turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. 
As you're making your way there, I'll just describe briefly the, the context. So it is Tuesday in the final week of the life of Jesus. And he's facing an array of challengers from all sides. Various groups of religious leaders are trying to trap and therefore expose and discredit him before the watching crowds. And no group has been successful. Not only has Jesus shown himself to be a masterful escape artist, but every time he has managed to also turn the question back on the questioners and thereby shown who's really in charge. This is like now in uh, verse 18, this is like the fourth group trying to trip Jesus up in a game of Bible jeopardy. Unfortunately for them, he's the one who wrote the book. Here's what I think is the main idea of uh, Mark chapter 12, verses 18 to 27. And the reason I give a main idea sentence is in part to keep me disciplined, to keep me honest, but it's also a way to help you to keep me honest and to train you to read your Bibles because the main idea of a sermon should reflect the main idea of a passage. Uh, you, you should beware if you're at a church where um, the, 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 the Bible passage is, it functions a bit like a springboard or a diving board into the preacher's own thoughts, opinions, etc. So here at RCBC, uh, we, we understand that we're going to be best served and best fed if I am not giving you what comes from myself, but rather from the Lord. So the main idea of the passage informs the main idea of the message. And here's what I think is the main idea. Since God's word is true, our eternal hope is sure. Since God's word is true, our eternal hope is sure. We'll think about this with two points as we kind of walk through this scene, the conundrum and the comeback. The conundrum, we'll see that in verses 18 to 23, and the comeback, that's verses 24 to 27. So first, the conundrum. Look there at Mark 12, verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. This is actually the only time the Sadducees explicitly appear in Mark's gospel. The Sadducees were a religious sect that dominated the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court, and they were actually the group from which the high priest was chosen. They were also very wealthy. They were the highest class in Israel. Think Jewish aristocracy. And much of their wealth was bound up in the operations of the temple, all that commerce, the money changers, the animal sellers, they were profiting from that chaotic circus until yesterday when Jesus had walked in and started flipping over tables and declaring war on all the corruption. No wonder then they're making their first appearance in Mark's gospel now, the very day after Jesus had wreaked havoc over their financial profiteering operation. Now remember, Mark is, is writing to a primarily Roman audience, a primarily non-Jewish audience. So he goes out of his way to explain to us uh, what the Sadducees believe theologically there in verse 18. Namely, not much. Mark writes, the Sadducees who say there is no 
resurrection, who say there is no resurrection. And to be clear, he's not referring to Jesus's resurrection. That hasn't happened yet. He's referring to the prevailing Jewish hope in a bodily resurrection of all people at the end of time. This is what the Sadducees deny. So how will you today remember who the Sadducees are? After all, they've only shown up once in Mark's gospel. They're not going to show up again. How are you going to remember it? It's simple. You ready for this? The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, so they're sad, you see. I'll just see my way out. Uh, in fact, with the exception of uh, belief in God, obviously they, they believed in God, they pretty much deny the supernatural altogether. So in many respects, these ancient Jewish religious leaders are not all that different from many, many modern secular people today, perhaps even different from you in terms of some of their uh, skeptical assumptions. We see this, their, their denial of the supernatural, in a passage like Acts 23. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read a couple verses from Acts 23. This is a couple decades later when the Apostle Paul is on trial before the Jewish ruling council. Acts 23, starting in verse 6. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees, and others Pharisees called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. And then Acts 23, 8, Luke explains for us, the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. See, the Sadducees, they elevated the Torah, the first five books of what we know as the, the Old Testament, the books Moses wrote, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They elevated these five books of Moses over everything else. Essentially, they said, hey, anything post-Moses, you're welcome to read, but anything post-Moses is not the full word of God. What's interesting is their rivals, the Pharisees, had the opposite problem. Uh, the, the Sadducees didn't go far enough. The Pharisees didn't know where to stop. The, the, the Pharisees didn't stop with the books of Moses. They didn't even stop with the whole canon of Scripture. They went beyond it to add rules and regulations of their own. There's a lesson here for us, isn't there? Beware of going beyond Scripture like a Pharisee or not going as far as Scripture, like a Sadducee. In Mark's Gospel, we've thought a lot about the dangers of legalism, crusty legalism and traditionalism that can accumulate like barnacles on the sufficient Word of God, and frankly, on a local church, if we're not careful. We've thought plenty about that. But this is a chance to consider the opposite danger because we're staring at Sadducees. Are there ways in which you are tempted to not go even as far as Scripture does in a certain area? Not to go beyond it, but to not even go as far as Scripture does. Uh, ways in which you're, you're tempted to 
truncate, to muffle, to mute, to mute the voice of God in your life. Things He has said in His Word that you just don't particularly care for. The Sadducees fancied themselves too smart, too dignified, too respectable to believe in things like angels and demons and resurrections. What about you? Are are there any teachings you're slow to embrace, hesitant to embrace because they feel inconvenient or embarrassing? Listen, if God is real, just, just think logically for a moment. If God is real, and he's not the product of any one culture, but is rather over all cultures, if God is real, then he will offend every culture and every person at some point. Can he disagree with you? In fact, one sign, friend, that you're dealing with the real God and not just a figment of your imagination You may wonder sometimes, how do I know if I'm dealing with the real God and not just a a cosmic projection of, of myself? Well, here's one way to know. Can he say and do things that you don't understand? Welcome to a real relationship with an actual person. But if the God you believe in is not permitted to do that, if the God you believe in is actually, when push comes to shove, not permitted to confuse you, trouble you, disagree with you, think differently than you, then you, friend, with respect, may not actually be staring at transcendence. You may just be looking in the mirror. Verse 19. Teacher, the Sadducees said, Moses wrote for us that If a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. They're referring to one specific law in the Torah, which, of course, again, they take as authoritative because it's it's the books of Moses. So they're pointing to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Just listen as I read Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother, in other words, her brother-in-law, shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Look, I know this, this kind of custom sounds strange. It sounds foreign to us, but in ancient culture, it was imperative. And in some cultures around the world today, imperative not to let your male relative's name die out and not to let the inheritance that's due to his son to be transferred to another family. Now, why are they bringing this up? Like, why are the Sadducees who are trying to trap and ensnare and embarrass Jesus, why are they trotting out this particular test case? Well, it's because they're wanting to show the logistical ridiculousness. And, and, and by showing the logistical, also the logical ridiculousness of eternal life. So here's their well-crafted hypothetical scenario 
based on this Mosaic law. Verse 20. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no, chil- no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. Jesus, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. Perhaps you're familiar with the old musical, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Well, this little thought experiment could be called One Bride for Seven Brothers. Uh, I've already said one kind of silly joke, so I'll just say one more here. Talk about a merry-go-round. Let's close in prayer. Do you, see what, uh, do you see what these Sadducees are doing? They're, they're, making, they're making sport of Jesus. I mean, they're, they're having fun with themselves. They, they, they are uh, making sport not just of Jesus, but probably also of their rivals, the onlooking Pharisees, because they've probably put this question, their hardest hypothetical scenario, they've probably put it to the Pharisees before and walked away pretty satisfied when those religious PhDs didn't have an answer. It's a gotcha question. They're trying to ridicule Jesus. I mean, how do we know that? How do we know it's kind of meant to be ridiculous? Because think about it. For their hypothetical scenario to work, you would only need two husbands. Hey, Jesus, in the resurrection, which of the two husbands would she be married to? But no, they don't stop there. They keep going and going and going until they reach seven. They're being ridiculous to show that the whole idea of resurrection is ridiculous. That belief in the afterlife is, practically speaking, Jesus, absurd. Notice their approach is hyper-logical. And I'm not... I am not about to criticize logic. I'm not saying it's, we don't want to be logical. We were literally doing a Sunday school class right now that began this morning on tackling tough questions, tackling, you know, facing down the hardest questions that people have ever asked about Christianity. It's important to think rationally and logically, but notice their approach is hyper-logical, hyper-pedantic. They're trying basically to get Jesus on a technicality. And there are people today who approach him like that too. Maybe some of them are sitting in this room. Rather than coming to Jesus with meaningful questions like, hey, Jesus, could you clarify for me what you mean by taking up my cross and following you? What you mean by counting the cost in order to be your disciple? What you mean by saying that you're the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through you. Can you help me understand this? No, it's just, can God create a rock so heavy he can't lift it? God's all-powerful, right? Right? Okay, good. God's all-powerful. So can he make a square triangle? Beloved, beware of people who are willing to talk to you about God, but they're actually just playing games, just blowing smoke. They're not really interested in considering the claims of Christ and whether they should submit their entire life to him. Just like a person, we all know people like this who 
who can never be in a social situation without making a joke at every opportunity, not because they're so funny, but because they're so insecure. There are many unbelievers, just like these Sadducees, who are trying to keep the king of glory at arm's length through silly, peripheral, beside-the-point distractions. If you're engaging with someone like that, if you're engaging with someone like that, I'd encourage you, believer, keep the main thing the main thing. Keep, keep the focus of your conversations not on the rock or the square triangle. Keep the focus of your conversations on the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the claims of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. As one person put it, quote, if Jesus rose from the dead, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. But if he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Keep the focus there. Jesus they ask, which of these seven guys, which of these seven will be her husband in the next life? That's what they're trying to show him and the Pharisees and the crowds. Don't you see that a resurrection, that life after death would create unsolvable problems? Just look at what might happen. Gotcha. Either, he'll say, she'll be married to the first husband because he was the first, or She'll be married to the last husband because he was the last. And they'll say, what about the legitimate rights of the other six? Or he'll say, she'll be married to all seven. In which case, they'll just say, Jesus, didn't Moses forbid adultery? Just like the Pharisees and Herodians last week, this new group, is probably smirking at this point, winking to one another, waiting for Jesus to just throw up his hands and say, you got me, okay, okay, you got me. I don't know. The conundrum. Number two, the comeback. Verse 24, Jesus replied, are you not in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? Some of you will know the names Bill and Vonette Bright. In 1951, they founded the campus ministry, Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew. And according to my good friends, Brandon and Lindsay Spurlock, whom some of you will know, Lindsay uh, works with VCU Crew. At a conference several years ago, the Bill Bright Study Bible had just been released and all the crew staff got a copy. Bill had gone to be with the Lord, but Vonette was sitting there signing copies for crew staff members of this new Bill Bright study Bible. And according to my friends, and they literally sent me a, a texted me a photo of this this morning. So this is, this is uh, a real story. She was signing her name and of all the verses she could have picked to put under her name, she wrote Mark 12, 24, which has got to be one of the most savage baller moves I've ever heard. Literally, this old widow sitting there writing, Vonette Bright, you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? 
but this verse, this is exactly how Jesus comes out of the gate. He doesn't first go to talking about marriage and the resurrection. He first says, oh, you don't even understand the power of God or the word of God. He's making eye contact with these Pharisees and saying, you're deceived, you're wrong. And the reason is because you're not yet familiar with the most important realities in the universe. And he puts his finger on two particular things, the word of God and the power of God. And he dares to say, you don't know either. You don't know either. Because if you really knew God's power, you wouldn't doubt his ability to raise the dead. And if you really knew God's word, you wouldn't deny the hope of a world to come. This was a shocking thing to say to Jewish priests who basically lived and profited from the temple courts. This would be like telling ESPN, you know nothing about sports. Telling Wall Street, you know nothing about finance. Telling VCU, you know nothing about art. As one commentator explains, quote, scripture and power. So those two things, scripture and power, the Torah and the Sanhedrin were precisely the Sadducees' stock in trade. The two matters in which they majored with magisterial, that is with kingly authority. Jesus asserts that what the Sadducees claim to know best, they in fact know least. They've gone astray, not at the periphery or in the incidentals of their belief system, but at the heart and center of their beliefs. It's possible, in other words, to be sincere but sincerely wrong with massive consequences. Human history is littered with examples of this, examples of people attempting to evade or deny the voice of God, the power of God by silencing his words. In 1750, 1750, in the heyday of the Enlightenment, the French philosopher Voltaire confidently made a prediction. He confidently predicted that the Bible would become extinct, a mere museum piece within a hundred years of his death. Fifty years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society purchased his house for printing Bibles. In fact, his house eventually became the Paris headquarters for the British and Foreign Bible Society. So the Sadducees here, they, they are, are disputing, Jesus is saying, they're disputing the power, the efficacy of God's word. They've asked, hey, in your theoretical heaven, Jesus, your theoretical heaven, whose wife would this woman be? And Jesus has said, well, first of all, you don't know your Bibles or the power of God. But now I'll answer your question. Verse 25. When the dead rise, they'll neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. People have uh, tried to look for all kinds of parallels here between glorified humans and angels. When someone dies, you might hear the sentiment, heaven got another angel. It's well-meaning, but misleading, very misleading. After believers die, we don't become like angels we become the kind of humans we were always meant to be. 
here, I think Jesus is simply drawing a parallel on, in regard to the thing he's talking about, marriage. He, he, not the totality of who will be. He's just saying, hey, resurrected humans won't be getting married. And in that sense, in that sense, they'll be like the angels. I also love that Jesus here presupposes truth. Notice that? He assumes it. He presupposes truth rather than error. Notice his very first word in verse 25. Not if the dead rise, but just a matter of fact, when, when it happens, because it will, Sadducees, if you knew the scriptures of the power of God, you'd understand that. And then in the same sentence, verse 25, he casually refers to angels into heaven, two other things that we've seen the Sadducees deny. He's essentially saying, I'm well aware of what you believe, but just so we're clear, there are angels, there is a heaven, and human corpses will be raised. Despite the Sadducees' deception, the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures had clearly and consistently promised life after death for those belonging to God. Just listen. You don't need to write any of this down. Just listen as I give you just a taste of this consistent refrain. Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Psalm 16, David writes, My heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Isaiah 26 a song of praise, but your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Daniel 12, speaking of the end times, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some of them to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. I'll give you one more. Hosea 13, God says, I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O oh death, are your plagues? Where, O oh grave, is your destruction? I could go on and on and on, but you get the point. The Sadducees have no excuse. It hasn't even crossed their minds that marriage might not endure in the age to come, that there will be no death and so, because, and therefore, humans will no longer need to reproduce. No wonder the Sadducees can't imagine a different kind of world because for them, this one is all there is. They don't have an eternal perspective. Resurrection, this is what they can't see. Resurrection will not just be an extension of this life, but will be an entrance into an entirely new dimension, like stepping through the wardrobe into Narnia. One commentator puts it like this, quote, the glorious realities of the life to come can no more be accommodated to the pedestrian routines of earthly life than can butterflies be compared to caterpillars. Present earthly experience 
is entirely insufficient to forecast heavenly realities. We can no more imagine heavenly existence than an infant in utero can imagine a Beethoven symphony or the Grand Canyon at sunset. Another implication of Jesus' statement here in verse 25 that there will be no marriage, no marriage in the age to come, is that human marriage is not ultimate. It's just not. I I said this yesterday while officiating uh, Grant and Justine's wedding in Tulsa. Some of you tuned into that. Human marriage is a gift, but if you ever let it, if you ever let it or if you let a desire for it become a god, if you turn a gift into a god, it'll disillusion you. It'll fail you. It will crush you and drive you into the ground. Just as I said last week that politics can't bear the existential weight that we sometimes place on it, nor can marriage. Your spouse is flawed, that's one reason, but also your marriage is temporary. It's not going to last. It's a signpost pointing beyond itself to the ultimate marriage, the wedding to end all weddings in the age to come when Jesus marries his church. See, human marriage is a creation ordinance. We see it in Genesis chapter 2. It's a creation ordinance, not a new creation ordinance. And this means that your marital status now, your marital status now is not the most important thing about you. It's not even near the most important thing about you. If you're in Christ but unmarried, the most important marriage you could ever possibly be part of is coming, and it's sure. Jesus himself, in fact, you can experience a solidarity with your Savior that married people can't because guess who else is awaiting their wedding day? Jesus Christ as he awaits his marriage to his bride, the church. And just because you don't have physical kids doesn't mean you can't bear numerous children spiritually through gospel ministry, which is the kind of fruit that will endure forever. If you're single, friend, don't believe the lie that you're just in some kind of holding pattern or that you're somehow deficient. If singleness is deficient, then so is Jesus Christ, who never got married. And if you're married, don't you dare try to find ultimate security, intimacy, companionship there, because it'll let you down. Oh, let's be a church that honors singleness, that honors singleness without denigrating marriage, and that honors marriage without denigrating singleness. Both callings are beautiful, both are needed, and both picture unique dimensions of gospel grace. Now, if you noticed earlier, Some of you, I know, are astute, and and you've noticed this. You noticed earlier the verses I read from the Old Testament that promised resurrection, life after death. They were all from books the Sadducees rejected. Everything I read was from the writings and the prophets. That is, those books after Moses. And, it, and as I said earlier, they, have, they had no excuse. They should not have done that. They were impoverishing themselves by hitting the mute button on God's voice. Now, 
Jesus could have lambasted them for that. He could have just ripped into them for ignoring all that rich revelation from God that I had read from Job and Psalms and Isaiah and Daniel and Hosea. But instead, Jesus, who treats people better than they deserve, treats people better than we would in a situation like this, Jesus just chooses to meet the Sadducees where they're at on their own terms. You're, you're the guys all about the writings of Moses, right? Okay, fine. Let's talk Moses. Verse 26. Now about the dead rising. So here he is bringing it up again. Just matter of fact. He answered the question they asked, but now he answers the real question they want to know. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses? <laughs> Just kind of a funny thing to say, like, because that's their whole Bible. He's like, have you not read in your favorite guy, Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he takes them to the holy ground of Exodus 3, which we read earlier in our scripture reading. That pivotal event where God appears to Moses in the burning bush and reveals his personal covenant name. And here's the key detail. Here's the key thing you need to know about that scene in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush that we read earlier in the service. The founding fathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, were long dead. Long dead by the time Moses is tiptoeing up to that burning bush. And yet, what does God say to him from the bush? God references Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but does God say, I was their God? No, he says, I am. I am still their God. What a brilliant inference Jesus is drawing. I mean, this should challenge us to, to read our Bibles more carefully, to slow down. As, it, as it's been said before, when you rake, you're just going to get a pile of leaves, but it's when you dig that you're going to find diamonds. Jesus is able to read the Bible, to slow down, to draw an inference based on one pivotal tense of a verb. And he's meeting them on the pages of one of their own favorite scenes. He's giving them home court advantage, as it were. And this is not some obscure passage. He's saying, hey, you know that passage that, that you love, that you read in your homes, that you've had memorized by heart since you were 12 years old? Read it more carefully. And when you do, you'll see, verse 27, that he is not the God of the dead but of the living. In other words, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive, even though their bodies are in the ground. And just as back in verse 24, Jesus had said, you are in error, here he says and concludes, you're badly mistaken. Just think about the logic Jesus is bringing to the surface here in his little argument. God's covenant promises through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to save his people, which the Sadducees accepted. They accepted Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, those promises would be of no significance if death could shatter them. Salvation that's not eternal 
is salvation that's not worth believing. Why would the Lord at the burning bush claim to be the God, present tense, I am the God of specific men who no longer exist? Obviously, Jesus says they still exist. They're still alive. They're just awaiting their resurrection bodies. And brothers and sisters, God hasn't changed. If he is in personal covenant with you because of your own union with Christ through faith, then his relationship with you, his covenant commitment to you won't be shattered by death either. You will know him. You will know him. You will enjoy him. You will experience him even more intimately than you do now beyond the grave. And when you die, this goes for everyone in this room, when you die, you will not just poof, cease to exist. In fact, this is the final article in our own church's statement of faith on the resurrection in the world to come. Quote, we believe death is not the end. Though human bodies after death return to dust, their spirits live on, the righteous departing immediately to be with the Lord and the unrighteous to be reserved under darkness until the day of judgment. We also believe the end of the world is approaching. On the last day, Christ will descend from heaven and raise the dead to final judgment. A public separation will take place that will forever fix, forever fix the final state of persons in heaven or hell. The unrighteous being justly, that is, fairly assigned to endless punishment and the righteous to endless joy to the glory of a holy and merciful God. Hell is eternal, and every one of us deserves it. And that's because all of us have turned away from the God who made us. All of us have built our lives on things other than Him. We've treated Him as if He's not enough for us. We've looked to other stuff for ultimate security and significance rather than to the God who loves us. We've spurned His name. We've belittled His worth. We've lived as if we don't need Him, except perhaps when things start really going badly. Hell is a just place and an eternal place, and every one of us deserves it, but heaven is also eternal. And even though none of us deserves it, we can go there. Everyone in this room can go there because Jesus Christ, our great forerunner, has flung open the door. He lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserve to die, and rose again, get this, rose again as a preview of what will happen to everyone who renounces their rebellion, whether of the irreligious variety or the religious variety. You can rebel against God while sitting in church. Everyone who rebels against God, uh, renounces their rebellion against God and puts their faith and their trust in Christ alone. Friend, the most astonishing reality in the universe is not that people go to hell. The most astonishing reality in the universe is that people go to heaven. The Sadducees assumed heaven would be just like earth. They had no ability to imagine something else. They, and therefore, they were only thinking, will there be marriage in heaven? 
You may have sometimes wondered, will there be sex in heaven? But the most important issue, friend, is will you be in heaven? And what will it be like? Well, this passage implies it'll be better than sex, better than marriage, better than the deepest intimacy you could possibly experience on earth. Well, in conclusion, once again, we have seen Israel's best and brightest come to Jesus to trap him, only for him to evade it and reverse it. Of course, with the Sadducees, the, the trap had everything to do with their particular point of disbelief. With the Sadducees, the trap had to do with the notion of resurrection and eternal life. Speaking of which, in less than five days, this same Jesus is going to extricate himself from yet another trap. The ultimate trap as he sets down his grave clothes and emerges from an empty tomb. And from that day forward, he will have a brand new glorified body, which he's had for the last 2,000 years. In fact, right now in heaven, there is a Middle Eastern man with real fingernails sitting on the throne of the universe. And if you belong to him by faith, then one day you're going to get a new body too. When he returns, you won't, despite what you may believe or have seen in popular culture, when he returns, you won't rise to float on clouds with harps and angels in some airy, fairy, disembodied state. No, you will be on a renewed and resurrected earth, walking and working and playing and singing and laughing and resting and reveling in the wonders of an endlessly good and beautiful God. Our last enemy, death, used to be able to crush us forever, but because of Christ, all death can do now is plant us for now. As the poet George, George Herbert once said, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him only a gardener. We live in a broken world, and sometimes everything around us can just look and feel like winter, but be of good cheer, beloved. Spring is coming. When the King of Kings returns, we're all going to rise again. Let's pray. Father, if there's anyone in this room who has yet to come to you with true, humble trust, submitting their entire life to you, saying, Jesus, I may not understand your ways. I may not always um, eat, be, be quick to appreciate your word. And yet I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow you. And I'm going to give up living for myself. Lord, if there's anyone here who has yet to make that most important decision they could ever make, then Lord, we pray that by your grace, you would invade their heart and open their eyes to see the irresistible beauty of Jesus. And it's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen.